As many of you know, we've been covering uh, this last several weeks a new section in our doctrine class, our systematic theology class. We've been talking about soteriology, which is the study of salvation, the doctrine of salvation. What does the Bible teach about what it means to be saved? And specifically, how does that happen? And Stephen has been doing the lion's share of the teaching um, we originally had planned to co-teach this, and what that's meant is Stephen does all the teaching, which I'm loving. I think it's been great. This is my favorite class I've ever co-taught. Um, <clears throat> he's been doing a really good job. So today is kind of a midway point. We're not done teaching on the doctrine of salvation. Um, but since we have covered um, sort of a broad definition of what salvation is, and we've covered um, specifically the topics of total depravity, and unconditional election. We wanted to pause here and give a few minutes just for questions and discussion. Um, And I'll just say this before we begin. Um, Our claim this morning and our goal is not that we can answer every question and convince everyone of this truth. If we could do that, we would just write a couple books and retire because these are things that people have been discussing and, and studying and wrestling with for centuries. What we do aim to do this morning is clarify what we mean as pastors and what we're teaching here at this church in terms of soteriology. So we hope that's persuasive to you, uh, but we're not under any illusions that we can completely answer every question and persuade every single person to view it the way we do. However, we are fully convinced of the truth of this interpretation of Scripture. And we're confident in that, and we're confident in it enough to teach it and to try to persuade you to join us in believing this truth about God's sovereignty and salvation. So let me pray real quick, and then we'll jump into some questions that you all may have. Lord, thank you for what we've been able to do the last several weeks in studying your word, and I thank you for Stephen's faithful labors to um, lay out for us very clearly in an organized fashion what it is that scripture teaches us about salvation, what it means to be saved, and how it is that you bring about uh, this great blessing for us. I ask, Lord, that as we um, chew on these truths this morning, as we reflect on some of the difficulties in understanding them, that you would give us humble hearts, that we would sit underneath your word and submit to it, and that we would submit not only our beliefs, but also our, our reasoning and our assumptions and our preconceptions and our desires, and that we would truly be teachable and have hearts that are receptive to your word. I pray that you'd give Stephen and me uh, wisdom intact in the way that we explain these matters, and we pray your blessing on this time together and ask that it would be helpful for all. Amen. Okay, as I mentioned before, uh, we're not claiming to answer every question, uh, but if you do have some questions, um, we would like to speak to some of those. We may refer you to some other classes we've already taught. If you're new to this class, we've been teaching uh, systematic theology for a number of months, I don't know, maybe a year now. It's been a while. So some of the things regarding the nature of God, regarding his sovereignty, regarding man's nature, some of those things have been talked about at other points. So if we do that, we're not dodging the bullet. We're just trying to save time for everybody. So go ahead. If you have any questions, just um, speak up loudly enough for the room to hear. We might repeat them for those who are listening to the recording later. So any, any questions? Richard? Yes. Um, so the Bible says God is not the author of Yes. How do you reconcile that with all these denominations? Okay. So Richard, welcome to our class. Glad to have you with us at our church today. It's Richard's first time. Glad for your question. Um, do you want to speak to that first? Or you want me to jump in? Okay, I'll go in. So God is not the author of confusion. Uh, if you look at that text, it is in, I believe, the book of 1 Corinthians. And it has to do with how a worship service is organized. And so Paul's teaching there to the church 
is that what we do should be orderly because it reflects a God who is orderly, who does things intentionally and for a reason. God is not a God of chaos. What that does not mean is a promise that mankind will always be able to understand everything there is to know about God. In fact, we read other passages like the book of Job. Job has lots of questions, and God basically says, listen, bud, you're not in the place to ask me all the questions. I'm going to ask you some questions, and sort of teaches Job graciously that there are certain things about God that we're not in a position to always fully um, hash out and understand, and that's okay. That's part of what it means that he's God and we're not. So there are different denominations because there's different traditions of interpreting Scripture. They're not all true. They're not all correct. Some are more correct than others. Um, So the standard for us is never denomination. The standard is God's word. And our aim is to be as close as possible to God's word. So I I wouldn't take that passage that God is not the author of confusion to be somehow promising that we should always be able to understand and agree with other Christians um, on everything there is to to see in Scripture. So that is a good question. And and it should help us to be humble as we approach Scripture. And even in the way we, we describe things, um, we want to be charitable towards those who disagree with us, even though we are passionate and convicted about what we think Scripture teaches. So, good question. Yeah, I would just say to summarize with that, maybe it's power button. All right. Maybe it is that. I think you're out of batteries. Let me get another mic. Could I get another mic for us? Thank you. I was just going to say, uh, in line with that question, we talked about a little bit in uh, bibliology, the clarity of Scripture. And the teaching of that doctrine just specifies it's not that God that was unclear, it's that man's sinful mind and heart and understanding, kind of what we talked about in total depravity, that's usually more the line that's getting it wrong. So we see these um, disparaging um, differences maybe, but there also ought to be a centralized unity, I think, um, mm-hmm. to, to the heart of the gospel as well. Yeah, so if there is confusion, that's our fault, not God's fault. Yep. That's a good point. <clears throat> yes? Yes. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> yeah, that's a good question. So just to recap, um, predestination can be confusing. If God chose who would be saved, then what's the point of sharing the gospel? Why did Jesus have to die? Isn't it already a, a done deal, so to speak? And where does our will play into that? Because humans make choices, and we're even called in Scripture to make an active choice to repent of sin and believe in Christ. So how does all that work together? I'll I'll let you. There's a couple things in there I think we can touch on that might add some clarity. It's a good question. It's an important question because what we don't want to do is 
end up in a place that disagrees with any part of scripture. We're trying to look at all the passages and say, here's what we see clearly, but if we land somewhere that disagrees with other parts of scripture, then we've landed in the wrong place. Um, So it's important to make sure we're not discounting some passages to uphold others. So in regards to um, predestination, uh, we looked at several passages that show that God has marked out people for salvation. Um, So we also clarified, too, that election um, in God's predestination doesn't accomplish salvation. So to Mm -hmm. one of the points of your question, um, we clarified that election doesn't do the saving action as much as it marks people out, almost like a a block of wood. Um, It doesn't accomplish the cut, but it sets aside where the cuts will be made. Um, And so think of that way when you think of election, too, to make sure we're not saying it's not that he chose and accomplished before the foundation of the world, but he did choose. There is a choice that's made based on the passages we saw in Scripture. So um, I think some of it is in our logical process. We kind of collapse some of the history of it and say, okay, if he chose, then it's done. And we need to kind of parse out like Jesus still had to die. Um, And the reason he still had to die is because we still had to be made holy. Our sins had to be atoned for, and we still had to receive righteousness. So just because he predestined those to be saved doesn't mean that the um, payment for salvation and even the application of salvation was finished. So that would be how I would answer kind of part of the question is why did Jesus have to come and die? Um, And then the second part of it is what about free will? Um, So in Scripture, we do see that man is responsible. Man makes choices and we are held accountable for those choices. So if God is predestining um, those who will be saved, what about free will? And I would say that um, when we think about the term free will, there's lots of definitions that come into that, whether it's philosophical Mm -hmm. or biblical or even interpersonal, experiential, um, in regards to how we define free will. And that's why a lot of times uh, when we're studying through the doctrines of grace, we start with total depravity. We need to understand really how free is this will that man has after the fall? What is the capacities of it? What can we choose and not choose? And what's important for us to understand is that uh, our will, according to Scripture, is, is separated from God. It's rejecting God already. So that's, that's the pool of people we're dealing with here. Uh, we're dealing with people whose will is, is antagonistic towards God. So the will is not free from sin. It's to not use, free to use from that sin. Language. Yeah. So the will, one way we've talked about it, is it's, it's um, activated and runs on desire. So um, if you think about um, an engine or uh, any sort of mechanical object, it has something that it runs on as fuel. And so the fuel for our will is desire. And so when we think about our desires apart from God, we have a broken heart. And so our desires that are activating our will, our volitional aspect of of us as creatures that God's made us to do is broken. We don't actually, not that we can't do horizontally morally good things. I can give money to the poor. I can help somebody cross the street. I can buy people groceries. I can do morally good things horizontally. Uh, But if I'm doing those things in total rejection of God without any thought to him or his glory or his purpose... If I'm not doing it to glorify him, that's a very narrow intention and motive of the heart. If I miss that mark, it is not morally good vertically before God. And so my will is not to choose God. My will is to reject him and to put myself on the throne. And that's what we see as sin. It's really is rebellion against God. And so 
we see that creatures are responsible for their choices. And we see that all throughout Scripture. And so when we, we come to this point, we have taught on it a little bit in regards to God's providence. But to talk about it again today, it's important to recognize that God is sovereign and man is responsible. And what's interesting in Scripture, as I've been studying through this, is you don't see this on um, you know, certain books aspect, you know, God's sovereignty and other books of the Bible really talk about human responsibility. What you see in scripture is this pattern that both are present, like in the same passage, whenever it comes up, the authors are trying to tie this together to say, these aren't distinct. They are, they aren't pulling in opposite directions, but they're actually united. Um, one of them that comes to mind is in Isaiah chapter 10, um, which is actually about the wrath of God. He's, he's calling, um, Assyria to come and actually bring judgment upon Israel, his own chosen people. And he says that they're his rod, the rod of his anger. And then later he says, but the intention of the Assyrian's heart was to do evil. And so he also in that same chapter pronounces judgment upon Assyria, who's going to bring judgment upon Israel. And it's like, well, we can't look there and say that God is unjust. We know that um, he's not. But he's still able sovereignly to bring judgment on his people from its from a pagan nation, and call them his righteous rod of judgment, yet still judge that nation for their sin and the intention of their heart. And so we also have to look at passages in the New Testament that speak the same way, that talk about um, the new birth. You know, John chapter 3 talks about um, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is like, how can I be born again? And Jesus says, it's, uh, the Spirit is like the wind that blows wherever he wills. He's the one that's creating this regeneration, this new birth that really gives man the ability to have an active will to choose God. And right after that, he explains that. He says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so in that passage, a lot of times how we hear it is we say, Whoever believes will have eternal life, will not perish but have eternal life. But I think there's actually exclusiveness in the whoever. And the whole point of the book in the Gospel of John is belief. Um, He says in chapter 20, um, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you'll have life in his name. So belief is a really key key word. And in John 3, 16, he says, whoever believes. So we read that passage and we think inclusivity. But what he's saying is, it doesn't matter who it is. If they believe, their will has been made alive to choose Christ. And that's from God. That's, that's the new birth. That's evidence of a new birth in their heart. So um, that's how I would kind of answer. I don't know if you want to jump in. Yeah, so you're mentioning passages that, that bring God's sovereignty and man's responsibility right, to get, like right next to each other. Um, I always think of Acts chapter 2 where Peter's preaching. And he says this. He says, men of Israel... This is verse 22 of Acts 2. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So there's sovereignty. God the Father is ordaining and planning together within the council of the, the Trinity and eternity past the death of God the Son. And so there's crucifixion planned in eternity past. So God is sovereign over that. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he's saying, God planned for all this to happen, and you're guilty. Like, those two things come right together. And the way they respond to this, 
um, a few verses later. Uh, in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So there's conviction, proper conviction. They didn't say, well, if God ordained it, then we're not guilty. We're just part of this machine. No, they, were, they, they saw their own part in it and their responsibility. They recognized it was their wickedness, their pride, their unbelief that led to the death of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, this was ultimately God's plan. So when we think about free will sovereignty, we, we do see both of those things defined properly. Free will defined as human beings make choices without coercion. So like Stephen said, we do make choices, but it's always according to our will, according to our nature. We do what we want to do. So our will is not free from sin. We're blind, we're enslaved, we're automatically uh, antagonistic to God because of the, the corruption of indwelling sin. So I think sometimes people recoil against this doctrine because they have this idea of there's someone who wants to be saved and is trying to get into the kingdom, and God says, sorry, you weren't on the invite list, and holds them away. But biblically, theologically, there, there is no such category. There's no one who wants to be saved, who's trying to get in, who desires to love Christ and repent of sin and believe, and God says, no, you're not on the list. That, that's a... That's a category that doesn't exist. By nature, all of us are running away from him. And we're dead, and we don't desire spiritual things. We can't understand them. And so anytime a person believes, it's because God has graciously overruled their natural desires, their natural inclinations, and done a work of grace to draw them to himself. That's why Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And not to steal Stephen's thunder from next week, irresistible grace, but the word can there isn't talking about permission. He's not saying no one may come to me. He's talking about power and ability. No one has the ability to come to me unless the Father draws him. So the fact that anyone is saved is only because of God's plan to save, that he would mark some of us and love the human race enough to save sinners. So this is a difficult thing to understand, like we mentioned earlier. So if that's confusing, I would just encourage you, keep reading, keep looking for it in Scripture because it's there. And, and Casey, I think the things that you're wrestling with is something that every faithful Christian, everybody who reads the Bible with both eyes wide open, is going to have to come to terms with at some point. And so we have to come to a decision. Am I going to sort of take these verses that talk about God's sovereignty and election and predestination and try to fit them into sort of my assumptions about what I have always thought about God? Or am I willing to allow Scripture to maybe tweak and shape my understanding about who God is and how he works? And that's a, a scary thing. Um, but this is what God calls us to, is to deeper study, to see him as he is. And so, yeah, to just echo what Stephen said, we wouldn't say someone who's predestined is already saved. So there's the planning of salvation in eternity past, the accomplishment of salvation at the cross and the resurrection, and then there's the application of salvation by the Holy Spirit when man comes alive and is born again. So we see salvation kind of has all those different components to it. So election does not equal salvation, but it marks out those who will be saved. So, yeah, a few thoughts there on free will, on election, and on how responsibility and, and divine sovereignty work together. So, yeah. So, just something that I think fleshes out maybe another, another element of that same concept is, is the question, can an unregenerate man please God? Yeah, I think Stephen spoke to that earlier. Can an unregenerate man please God? And the answer is no, not in any way that has spiritual merit not in a way that would any, that in any sense be true worship or, or be counted as righteousness. 
there's something in our nature because of the corruption of it that it's always, the well is poisoned. Yeah, I would say um, there is what's um, called common grace. So God's pleasure is in accomplishing his will too. So I would say he is pleased in the sense that his plans are, are folding out perfectly, exactly according to what he has planned. Mm-hmm. But he's not pleased in the sense to say, you please me. And, and scripture says, apart from faith, it is impossible to, cle- to please God. So yeah. if we in are... In that relational sense. In that yeah. relational sense. So, so I would say, um, because of what scripture says and how a relational person, um, human being, can please the sovereign God, mm-hmm. I, I would say we wouldn't be able to, apart from... Um, faith in a, in a relational way. Mm-hmm. We need a new heart in order to please God. Yeah, yeah. And going back to the, the human will, like that's what the prophets talked about. We have a heart of stone and we need that to be taken out and given a heart of flesh that can uh, respond rightly to, mm-hmm. to our creator. Mandy. Yes. So scriptures that talk about the importance of sharing the gospel and how we can find comfort in this doctrine rather than see it as confusing. Yes, a couple things. Um, I'll just say this about God's sovereignty. God not only ordains the end, the goal. So Stephen talked about like a carpenter would mark on a piece of wood where he plans to cut. So God ordains the end, goal, but he also ordains the means by which he accomplishes that end. So God plans to save sinners, which means then, necessarily, he must send his own son so that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's a necessary comp- uh, a consequence of that eternal plan. That's the only way that it can happen. Um, similarly, he ordains that people like Mendy will share the gospel with someone who comes into you know, her office during the week because that is the means that God has ordained. He, he has perhaps chosen some of those people to be saved. And how Romans 10 says, how are they to believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless someone tells them? Like there's this logical necessity to that. And God ordains the means just as much as he ordains the ends. And so we're called to obey and to participate in what God is doing to bring salvation to the world. So obviously we have the Great Commission, which maps that out for us. We have Romans 10, which talks about the necessity of preaching and proclaiming. That's not preaching from a pulpit. That's proclaiming what's true about Jesus to anyone who will hear. And so we're supposed to sow the seed wherever it falls and trust that God will water it. Um, A passage that encourages me in terms of predestination um, is something that that Paul receives from the Lord in the book of Acts. Is this where you were, you were going to go? Okay, good. Um, and he tells Paul to remain a while for this, in the city. He says, because I have many people in this city. And, and the context there is saying, there's still unbelievers out there um, that are predestined for salvation. And Paul's gracious privilege is that he gets to go find them. So um, Roger Johansson, a missionary to Brazil that some of you have met, he always talks about evangelism that way. He says, God has his elect out there, and my job is I get to go find them. Um, and it's almost like shooting fish in a barrel. You know that there's people that God has ordained for salvation. And, and knowing that it depends not on us to be persuasive, it, it doesn't depend on me to convince someone. It depends on whether or not God is going to work in their life. And I know that the singular means God uses 
is the gospel. So when we proclaim the gospel, we're putting out the seed. We don't know the soil conditions. It might be rocky soil, might be thorny soil, might be hard soil, might be good soil. We're not to make that determination. That's not our job. We, we can't know who's elect and who's predestined. And I think it's not wise to try to figure it out. Our job is to preach the gospel indiscriminately and trust that God has his people out there who are going to believe. And this brings us comfort. Um, when someone doesn't believe, um, well, that grieves me. And while that's not what I want to see happen, and I pray that that will change, at the end of the day, I know it's, it's not my fault. It's because their heart is hard and they don't want to believe. And if someone does believe, if someone does come to faith in Christ, I can't pat myself on the back and say, look how persuasive I was. Look how good a job I did explaining the gospel to them. I go, wow, that was just God's grace at work, and I happen to just be part of it. And, and so God gets all the glory when a sinner repents and believes. Um, so I, I find that comforting as someone who seeks to share the gospel with others, that God has his people out there, um, and that he has ordained a singular means to bring about salvation, and it's the preaching of the gospel. So it's necessary. Just as it was necessary for Christ to die, it's necessary for us to witness and to proclaim the truth, because that's what God is going to use to save people. So, Yeah, I would just add to, um, unless you already said this, maybe I'm just echoing, but we're commanded we're commanded to go share the gospel. So that could be enough, but Scripture's gracious enough to give us more, too. Um, on top of that, um, one passage that came to mind was 2 Timothy um, chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, mm-hmm. that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So there's this aspect, even in Scripture, that, that we're striving to that end. That's why we go and proclaim the gospel is for the elect. And it's clearly um, what, what Paul was striving for. And right before that, he talks about enduring bound in chains as a criminal. Um, but he's saying God's word isn't bound. Like, it's going forth with power and authority. And it's mm-hmm. changing people's lives through the Spirit. So I think there's this um, misconception um, from this view of salvation that assumes, well, if it's done, it's done. I don't have to do anything. Um, but sometimes what's helpful and convincing, too, is thinking conversely. Okay, what, what about the other case? Um, well, it wouldn't be as glorifying to God, like J.D. said, um, if it was about my persuasiveness. Um, I also would have a huge amount of burden on my back to say, I didn't take every opportunity. I didn't say everything I needed to say. I wasn't prepared. I didn't know. Me, 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 me. (laughs) And that's not going to be a good result either, right? Mm -hmm. That's totally taking it off the centrality of Christ and the cross, which is the the whole goal of what we're trying to share in evangelism. So um, I think it's helpful to balance out and just think through, okay, um, what how would somebody else answer that question that disagrees with this view? Um, and also to see just the testimony of Scripture, like this is, this is what we're aiming at. And, and there is this sureness that comes with it. Like J.D. said, like there's guaranteed results. So that relieves any sort of performance pressure on my part, and it really just becomes obedience and joyful obedience to that. It's, there's several times, you know, for those that are parents, like you have a child and you don't need their help mowing the lawn. But when you invite them to be a part of something that you can do all by yourself, there's so much joy they experience in getting to be a part of it, even if it's imperfect. Um, And I think that's what we're invited to be a part of, is this joyful experience of seeing God do the work in people's lives. And really, we're the ones that miss out when we fall into disobedience and don't seek to share the gospel. So, 
one final thing I'll add to that. I think sometimes we see predestination as a cold doctrine and that people who believe that must have zero pity, no compassion, no love for those you know, who are lost. And I think that what's really scary about that is that you start to think maybe that's how God is. Um, and while this maybe opens up another can of worms, I think a passage we should remember is in Luke 13 where Jesus is talking about Jerusalem, who is largely rejecting him. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is Luke 13, 34, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. I think what we see there is the responsibility of the people in Jerusalem for rejecting Christ, but also the compassion of Christ. That, that while some of these people may not be ordained for salvation, that does not mean that God's heart is cold towards them or that Christ has no sense of compassion or pity for the lost. Um, God sometimes chooses things that he knows will ultimately result in the greatest glory for him and the greatest joy for his people. But that does not mean there's no compassion for those who are outside of the elect. I still think there is a general disposition of God that is gracious and merciful and patient and compassionate. So predestination does not mean there's a calloused God in the heavens who has no pity, no, 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 no pity, no compassion for the lost. And so we, as his people, ought to be like him, and we ought to have the same kind of compassion for those who reject Christ. There ought to be a longing, like, I wish that these people would believe. I want them to know Christ and experience salvation. And there's an appropriate level of love and compassion that should be in God's people that reflects the heart of God. So good. Other questions? Um, go here, Joe. Yes. Yeah, without the steadfast love of God that was planned in eternity past, there would be no salvation. Yes. It depends on him from start to finish. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the proof of his love. So if predestination sounds unloving, it means we're not looking at the cross anymore. And we've forgotten what Jesus did to secure this salvation for us. That's the ultimate display of love. So... So, yes, so the question is, is this like advanced Christianity that should only be reserved and taught to older Christians, or is this something that should be part of basic discipleship of new Christians? Um, I think it's something that should be ba part of basic discipleship for new Christians for this reason. Um, this is something, to know God rightly, we need to see him in the fullness of who he is. And if this is what God has done to save us, if this is what he's like, if this is who he is, then he's to be known and worshipped for this. So I wouldn't want to shield any believer from this doctrine. At the same time, I would say, this isn't something I typically try to convince unbelievers of. I want them to be aware of their sin. I want to prick the conscience. I want them to sense guilt and conviction. And I want to present to them the good news that Jesus died for sinners. And whoever believes will be saved. And I tell them that. I'm not trying to convince them that their will isn't free. I'm not trying to convince them that um, they, they won't be saved unless God chose them. That, that's not the tip of the spear evangelistically. Um, but I do think it's a, it's a wonderful part of discipleship that 
Part of discipleship is we want people to see God and behold his glory. And this is a doctrine that displays the glory, the love, the faithfulness of, of God. So yes to teaching Christians. And that's why, that's why we're talking about it. Some, some churches may be sort of agnostic on this. They wouldn't want to talk about this from the pulpit. We're trying to teach it to all of you um, because we see it in Scripture and we think this should be part of our understanding of God and should shape the way we relate to him, the way we do ministry, the way we pray, the way we preach, the way we share the gospel. So this is a practical doctrine for us. Anything you want to add? All right, other questions? Andrew. Yeah, so practical question, when do you stop sharing the gospel with someone? When do you decide they've heard it enough, my job is done here? You want to say anything to that? I've got thoughts. Yeah. Well, Andrew and I have already talked about this, so I'm interested oh, okay. to hear your thoughts. But, um, well, tell me what you said to Andrew, because I don't know what you said to Andrew. Did we already repeat the question? You did. Yes. Okay, good. Um, so what we kind of talked about was some of its... Well, first of all, biblically, let's talk, let's talk about what Bible verses came to mind. One was there's the passage where he says, shake off the dust of your shoes. Don't cast your pearl before swine. Um, there seems to be um, passages that indicate there's a level of rejection that people say, I don't want Jesus. I don't think he's the son of God. Get out of here. You know, and there's just a level of rejection. Um, but what we talked about specifically was like the aspect of like family evangelism. And I think there's kind of a long-term aspect in family evangelism that says there, there ought to be not this, um, every time I meet with this family member, I need to clearly lay out the four points of the gospel, God, man, Jesus response, and that's what we need to talk about. That's all we talk about. Um, I would say with family, there needs to be a sort of long-term faithfulness because that's also the sphere God's put you in. Um, so there needs to be not just a verbal proclamation of the gospel, that needs to be present, but there ought to be a sort of um, display of the gospel to say, you look different, why do you not treat me the way I treat you? Um, and, and the Spirit's going to be convicting of sin as well. So I would say, um, depending on the context, there's going to be some where it's like they've just rejected and, and there's no need um, to spend your time more. Um, but when it comes to sphere of influence, like where you're at, where God's placed you is intentional. And so we need to be faithful where we're at. Um, but if you're, you know, to go into a coffee shop and somebody's just belligerent, um, then you don't, they, they know, they know who Jesus is. They've rejected the truth. And at that point, um, they don't need to hear more information. Uh, what they need is, is the spirit to convict them of sin. And so what they need is prayer. And that's what I'd say doesn't stop in any context is mm -hmm. prayer. Mm -hmm. Prayer needs to persevere, um, especially as saints. Um, we need to be persistent in prayer, asking God to do the work, especially when information is present and rejected. Um, there's, there's no more need of information at that point. What they need is, is the spirit's work. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> so the passage came to mind is, yeah, sometimes people move on. But I think about the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> um, who is very antagonistic and persecuting the church. And people probably had stopped trying to persuade him of the gospel. But yet, God had him marked out, not only for salvation, but to be used greatly to spread the gospel throughout the world. So um, I was going to say what Stephen said. We may stop sharing the gospel with someone at a certain point, but we would never stop praying for them. 
and praying that the gospel would sink in. Okay, the soil condition seems to be hard-packed, but the God we serve is able to change the soil conditions so that that seed can, can sprout and, and grow roots and then bear fruit. So, yeah, I, I would say that you have to use discernment in that, and some of that's relationships, context, what's been shared, and it is a long-term game, and prayer is something we would never quit doing. And part of it, too, um, is Scripture never talks about identifying the elect. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it, as I've been thinking about it more with evangelism, is to glorify God. Like, it would not be as glorifying to God if he just helped us have this little, you know, like election finder, like a stud finder that just quickly <laughs> identified people, yeah. you know? Those stud finders never um, work, though. Whereas when we, don't, <laughs> yeah. when, we, when we don't have that tool or that spiritual gift or whatever we can imagine that tool would mm-hmm. be, what happens is, is we're proclaiming the glories of God to everyone everywhere, mm-hmm. and that glorifies God immensely. So that's what we're called to do, and that's why we need to obey um, yeah. and not seek to say, well, they're elect, they're not elect. We're never told to identify or not identify elect or non-elect. Like, that's yeah. not our job. Our job is to proclaim. Yeah, who would have thought that, that um, the Apostle Paul, you know, Paul who became the Apostle Paul, who would have thought, oh, I bet he's going to get saved someday? Nobody would have thought that. Um, so, yeah, we're not supposed to try to figure it out. And, and also this, you would say, well, then what value is there with sharing the gospel with someone who's not predestined for salvation? Like Stephen said, it's proclaiming the glory of Christ. Whether or not someone believes they need to hear that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again. They need to hear about his glory um, because Jesus deserves praise. So that's part of what we're doing is telling people, you should hear about this. And whether or not they believe in it, at the end of the day is besides the point because Christ deserves to be magnified. And on the day of judgment, when they stand before the judge, that will be something that glorifies God in the sense that their condemnation will be proven to be just. They heard and they knew. And so God's condemnation of them on the last day will be seen to be perfectly just, and there will be no excuses. And so that's something. God's judgment also brings him glory, just as much as his saving grace brings him glory. So there's value in us preaching the gospel to everyone, even though we don't have, I like your illustration, we don't have the stud finder that beeps and says, oh, this is one I should share with him. So, Ryan. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the question is, what's the responsibility for those born in sin but who have never rejected Christ? Perhaps the unborn, those who have severe uh, mental handicaps, limitations, things like that. This is something we spent how many hours talking about this week? Too many. Probably too many. A We've lot. talked about this quite a bit. Um, and this can get down into the weeds. And it's it is important. So I'm going to let you start. <laughs> Since, since we talked about this so extensively, and we were kind of ha- wrestling through this, um, yeah. we both have thoughts on that, and there's kind of a couple different ways Christians have answered that throughout the centuries. There's not like one exclusive like, answer that everybody agrees on, but even within sort of the reform perspective we're coming from, there's a couple different things we can say. So one of the things that we kind of talked through about it that's really um, was helpful for me in, in understanding how to properly answer this question is, is going back to the basics of the gospel. 
Um, what we can't do in answering this question is take away from the centrality of Christ. Um, we can't say that salvation or um, something happens to, to an unborn child, that they get to go to heaven apart from Christ. Um, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So um, what we have to understand is there, there may be means, um, other than what we see clearly and prominently laid out in Scripture, by which um, that unborn child that has um, no volitional or cognition understanding um, of the gospel, um, but it's not um, outside of the realm of where God can intervene and act mm -hmm. to save an unborn child, to say, um, this is my elect, and Jesus died for the sin nature uh, that brings guilt and condemnation on all the human race. And um, what, if I'm being honest, what questions that brought up for me is how can that happen apart from faith? And that's where we also actually have comfort um, in this, uh, these doctrines of grace that we're coming to to say if faith is ultimately from God, um, if, if it's an ability that he gives through uh, regeneration and new birth, that he can do it as the Spirit wills. Um, conversely, if it is left strictly to man's will, um, what's left for that, that unborn child that, that can't will, that, can't, that God's saying, I, I would, but you wouldn't. Um, I'm trying, but you can't yet. Um, what a horrendous um, outcome that would bring. Um, so I would say um, there are passages in Scripture that speak specifically to it. Um, David talks about um, his unborn child saying that I will see you again. Um, and so there's hope in that and comfort um, for many of us who have had miscarriages or have friends and family who have lost children um, or for those of us that have um, handicapped family members. Um, it's, it's a real personal question. And I think there's, there's actually comfort in Scripture to say um, God is not bound, he's not thwarted, he's not mm -hmm. stopped. And there's, there's, there's hope for those that can't, as we see predominantly um, laid out in Scripture, um, go through what we would see um, a, a volitional choice um, if those mm -hmm. capacities are lost. And ultimately, yeah. those, those decisions and those deaths are all part of the consequences of the fall, too. So it's not... Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say the idea of predestination is actually what gives me hope that those children will be in heaven, like Stephen said, because it doesn't ultimately depend on man's choice, um, although that's part of how God brings salvation about for most of us. Um, kind of rewinding back and thinking about it, yes, a child has not yet um, actively sinned against God, but remember we talked about sin nature. There's this idea that Adam represents the human race, and there's not just an inherited disposition. There's even, <clears throat> I believe, an inherited guilt that comes from Adam. So because Adam was the whole human race when he sinned, the whole human race is considered guilty. Um, and on the flip side, you know, Jesus, as the second Adam, uh, his righteousness can be imputed uh, to us. So that's where that status changes. So even though a child has not yet maybe committed sin, they're still in this standpoint of they're standing on the wrong side of the line. They're standing with the guilty. Um, so when we think about how salvation works, it has to be through the cross. And so... Um, I do believe, this is how I would counsel someone who lost a child or who's asking this question. I believe that God does everything for his glory. And so we see that God's judgment brings him glory, but also salvation brings him glory. So we would ask, in what way would consigning an infant to hell glorify God? 
Um, and it's hard to answer that. It's hard to see how that could or how that would. Some people say it does. I'm, I'm not there. Um, I think it brings God much glory to set his love upon those uh, who never even saw the light of day, perhaps, or those who never were able to, to understand, think cognitively, to, to grasp what the gospel is, for God to set his love upon them. And, and not to say, I'll save you because you never sinned, but to say, I'll save you because Jesus died for your guilt. I'll save you because Christ removed the, the curse of sin, and Adam's guilt has been dealt with at the cross. So it's, the cross is still necessary for the saving of such people. And um, you see in Romans 1 that God condemns people, judges people who have suppressed the knowledge of the truth, who have refused to believe what can be clearly known about God from creation because they've seen it. Those who, according to Romans chapter 2, have a conscience that tells them they're sinful. A baby has not seen. A baby has not suppressed the truth. A baby has no sense of conscience. So it's hard to see how God's condemnation of them would bring glory. But I can see how if there is a human being made in the image of God who wakes up in glory and realizes I'm here because God loves me and there's no other explanation. They, that baby, that person, that human has a reason to praise God for eternity because Christ died for them and they never even got a chance you know, to, to reject him or to choose him or anything. They're simply swept up into his plan of grace. So that's why I think, like Stephen said, the passage about David's child, I think there's reason to believe that God would save infants. And even, it's interesting, with John the Baptist, you see that the Holy Spirit was at work in him, even in his mother's womb. So that's not normal, that's not typical, but it says that God can do things like that and give the gift of faith, perhaps. Um, so I, I can, with a clear conscience, offer comfort and counsel to those who are wrestling with this. That's where I'm at. Again, that's not where everyone's at, but... Uh, that's kind of how I understand those things. And it's, again, it's because of predestination. If you don't believe in predestination, then you have to either say they all go to hell or else God saves people apart from the work of Christ somehow. Um, so that, that's kind of how I understand that. So we are yes, out of time. We are out of time. Something. I did want to add one thing. Okay. So there's this as an attempt for more persuasion because we love you guys. Uh, Romans 9 is obviously um, probably one of the most clear passages um, on election. And one of the things that I came across really quickly um, was who is accused most often of their view of God being unjust or of man having no opportunity. I would say the, the Calvinist view is accused of that most often. What's interesting is um, in the inspiration of Scripture, when you read through Romans 9, those are the exact questions that Paul raises. Mm -hmm. And so when people try to offer other interpretations of Romans chapter 9, they're not accused of these questions. These questions don't come up when they interpret it in a, what I would say, incorrect way. So as you read through this passage, you almost think it's interacting with you when you read through it and you say, well, that doesn't sound just. And you look at the next verse and he says, are we to say that God is unjust? By no means. And so read through Romans chapter 9 if you're still wrestling with this, and will, at different stages of your walk with Christ, you will come to a point where like, really? Is, is that really how this is? And just go back to it and read through it in full and just say, man, I, I need to respond and make sure that I'm interpreting Scripture in a way that is consistent, that is um, um, in the same vein of thought as the original authors would have intended. And so to me, that was just a really um, compelling question mm -hmm. to say, who, who's accused of this? And if they are, they're probably getting this passage right, not mm -hmm. wrong. So yeah. just wanted to pass that along as, as food for thought as well. But 
I'm sure you have more questions. We're available outside of this class as well. Um, so ask us, and then come back next week. Stephen's going to talk about irresistible grace. If God has elected people to salvation, but they don't want to be saved, then he's got to do something. Actually, JD's going to talk about limited atonement. Oh, never mind. I'm talking about limited atonement next week. Okay. Come next back week, October I'll do... 3rd for irresistible grace. Okay, I'll do limited atonement next week. All right, thanks. We'll see you back here in a few minutes.